The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter. Glory to you at that, Lord. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated, and children are welcome to come up and join me for children's time. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Heifers and goats and rams and turtle doves and pigeons and foxes and hens, oh my. I feel like I'm in an alternate version of the Wizard of Oz this morning with all the animals that appear in our readings for today. We have a veritable menagerie of animals from our two readings, which both are a little strange, I would have to say. Um, In the first reading, God makes a covenant with Abraham as a sign of of their pact. And uh, uh, Abraham gets all of these animals together. He slices some of them in half. He lays them in two lines. And then while Abraham is sleeping, a smoking fire pot, whatever that is, and a flaming torch pass between them. And in our gospel, Jesus likens himself to a mother hen, wishing he could gather the people of Jerusalem like so many chicks under the protection of his wing. These are the kinds of readings that you might well pass right over when you're reading the Bible on your own. And given the chance, I'd skip over them too. But these are the appointed readings for the second Sunday in Lent. And so what are we to make of them? Faced with these readings, I was reminded of some wisdom from my New Testament professor at Harvard, Pat Tiller, who would tell us in class that we ought to pay close attention to these kinds of strange passages. He would say that the harder the reading, that is, the more difficult to translate or the more strangely worded or the stranger the story, the the closer it probably is to the original. Basically, he said, they are weird for a reason. So pay attention. The Bible contains stories that were told and retold and then written and rewritten over thousands of years And it would not be uncommon in that process for the stories and the writing to be refined and smoothed over and edited. And in some cases, the biblical writers, like the gospel writers, did that to one another. And there were also different copies of the Bible, which were written on papyrus, which all had minor differences that scholars like to compare. And the scholars will say that the more difficult translations are preferable because Um, they are probably closer to the first draft, to the original draft of the story. Um, It's kind of like editing your kids' book reports, which I was working on this week at home, and you read through the report, and 
you're so tempted to remove the repeating ideas or to clean up the grammar and punctuation and make it flow better just the way that you would want to write it. Uh, and while that often makes it better, it's a fine line because some of the original intention of the author, in this case, my daughter, gets lost. And so the harder, the weirder the passage, the more likely it is to be closer to the author's original intention. And if you know me, you know that I like these kinds of passages, like when I preached on how many cubits it took to build the tent of meeting in the book of Exodus, or preaching a sermon on the beginning of the book of Numbers with a census of all the tribes of Israel. And often these passages, which at first glance seem to be relics of history and have very little to say to us in our modern times, they often bear the most fruit when we stick with them. And it got me thinking about the wisdom of this for our own lives as well, and how it is often the hard and difficult places in our lives that we prefer to skip over or ignore or avoid, that if we stick with them, we'll yield a blessing. And it reminded me something that the pastor and author Nadia Boltz-Weber once said, that it is the hard places, the jagged edges of our lives, where we most encounter the love of God. And she uh, recorded a very short video on this that I want to share with you now. Thanks, Ted. As someone who stumbles through faith and life in general and who's never managed to feel spiritual for any extended period of time, who's snarky and selfish and sometimes downright petty, the truth is... I only really feel connected to other people who are also like that. I mean, it feels good to be inspired by other people, to admire their accomplishments and be dazzled by their virtues. But what I really want is to not feel so alone. And while I might feel inspired by someone who is good, I only feel less alone when someone shares their failures with me, the things they struggle with, the parts of themselves that are more jagged than smooth. And I guess I've always suspected that so much of religion and spirituality, so much of what is offered is a way to sand down the edges of ourselves. Like it's all a program for making ourselves into something less janky and more pure, as if with enough yoga or Bible study or organic foods, we can spiritually improve ourselves into purity of heart and mind. And if you find that it doesn't work for you, if you find that all the New Age meditation doesn't do the trick and you still experience road rage or maybe just a tiny bit of hatred toward your boss and you still binge watch too much Netflix and can't seem to manifest everything in your life that you should, just know that you are totally not alone. You don't have to fake anything. It just so happens that the jagged edges of our humanity are what actually connect us to one another. Those wounds and failures and misconceptions and mistakes, those are the things that actually create enough texture on us that God and our fellow human beings have something to grab onto. I love that last line. 
It just so happens that the jagged edges of our humanity are what actually connects us to one another. Those wounds and failures and misconceptions and mistakes, those are the things that actually create enough texture on us that God and our fellow human beings have something to grab onto. And the same can be said, I think, in some ways for our readings for today. It is their challenging nature that gives us places to hold on to the story and enter in. And so what do Abraham and all his animals have to teach us this morning about God and meeting us at the jagged edges? Quite a lot, it turns out. Uh, We actually read about this at the laid-back book study a while ago when we read the book, What is the Bible? by Rob Bell. And he talks about this passage in chapter 7 called Smoking Fire Pots. (laughs) And he said that this cutting of the animals in half and making two rows with an aisle in the middle was actually an ancient way of making a contract or covenant. In fact, this is where we get the phrase to cut a deal comes from. And so this is how it would work. He says that the two people making the contract or the covenant or the deal would take the animals, cut them in half in two rows and creating an aisle, and they would stand, by, stand with each other side by side and say what they were going to do. And then they'd walk between the halves of the animals while they said something like this. May I become like these animals if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant. Rituals like these were the glue, the bond, the insurance, the way that people trusted each other, the way that society held itself together. And so Abraham and God were entering into a covenant. They were cutting a deal. And so this is what people did at that time. And then a deep sleep descends upon Abraham. And then a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appear to Abraham and pass between the pieces. The fire pot being the presence of God. God passes through that aisle, passes through those animals alone. In this story, God is the only one who passes through. And so the story starts with something that people at that time would have found familiar and did all the time and then takes an unexpected turn. In the story, God commits to upholding both ends of the deal, both God's and Abraham's. And so even if Abraham fails to do his part, God will still be faithful. Abraham is being invited to trust God to believe that God is good and has his best interests in mind and will be faithful to him, even if Abraham makes a mess of things, which, by the way, he did. (laughs) And so this story is about a human being having a relationship with a living and a loving God, Bell says, and that this was a brand new idea in human history at this time. Previously, and Here's where my one class on ancient Near East religion finally comes in handy. Previously, before this, there was not just one God, but there were many gods. Think of like the pantheon of the Greeks or Roman gods that we learned about in school. There was a pantheon of gods of the ancient Near East, gods who needed to be served and sacrificed to, gods who were capricious and childish and petulant and vengeful and vindictive. But in this story, we hear that there is one God, and this one God of the universe is going to do something for Abraham and promises to do it even if Abraham screws it up. 
Bell says it's a particular kind of relationship with a particular kind of God, one who is good and kind and generous, one who can be trusted, one who keeps insisting, trust me, I got this. And this is what God says to us in our lives as well. Trust me, I got this. Though you are jagged and rough, though you screw up and make a mess of on the promise of God. And that's what Lutherans mean when we say we are justified by grace through faith. We're saying that God loves us, God forgives us, and God saves us, not because of what we have done, not because we have fulfilled our end of some contract or bargain, which we have not, but because God is God, because God is love, because God is forgiveness, and God is grace. There's nothing you can do to earn that. There is nothing that you can do to lose that. God loves you completely and totally and perfectly and eternally, and God keeps on loving us and keeps on forgiving us and keeps on saving us even when we screw it up. This story of Abraham and our story is a story about grace and trust and love and hope. In much the same way, we see Jesus in our gospel lamenting over Jerusalem. And later on at Holy Week, um, he'll enter into Jerusalem triumphantly on Palm Sunday. He'll cleanse the temple, have his last supper. He'll be betrayed and handed over and tied and beaten and crucified. But for now, he looks out on the city of Jerusalem and says, How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Jesus wants to gather the people of Jerusalem under his wings like a mother hen and protect them, them from that fox, Herod, and from the other foxes of this world. But they refuse. They refuse the shelter of his wings. They don't listen. They aren't willing to accept him. He calls to them, but they reject him. At his trial, the crowd of people gathered will choose to release Barabbas, a bandit, instead of Jesus. His number one disciple, Peter, will deny him. And the story of the life of Jesus, even with all its miracles and wonders, is finally a story of rejection, of which the cross is the ultimate symbol. He came to them as one of them, but they did not accept him. And even still, and even so, on the cross, he will spread out his arms to embrace all the world. He will gather them in through his solidarity in their suffering and bring new life out of death through his own resurrection. On the cross, Jesus fulfills both sides of the covenant. Jerusalem, who was not willing, is embraced and saved and redeemed, not through what they had done, but in spite of what they had done. Jesus fulfilled both sides of the deal by laying down his life for us. And that is where we are headed this Lent. Lent is not about giving up or taking on so that we can smooth all of our rough edges so that we can fulfill our end of the bargain and earn God's love or salvation. As I shared with the children earlier, I don't know about you, but keeping my Lenten discipline is more of a reminder of how imperfectly I keep it and how tenuous my resolutions are. But it is in those jagged edges which we work so hard to smooth and to hide. It is those jagged edges, those things done and left undone, the wounds, the places that we are vulnerable and weak, 
These are the places that God meets us and heals us and saves us. These are the places where God comes to us and says, trust me, I got this. Amen.